Good evening. My calendar is right. It's been about a month since my family and I moved to Bowling Green, and so far so good. No snow or anything like that, and so things are going well. No, sincerely, I want to say we are enjoying our time here so far. We are really enjoying getting to be your teammate and to be in your presence and to fellowship with you. We are getting to know all of you better, and we are thankful for that. It's been a joy to work with David and to be able to work with Neil. Neil's in a gospel meeting this weekend with Tumka, asking that you pray for him, and we know that things will be well. I text him this morning and pray that his meeting continues to go well, and we are just grateful to be on the same team with you all and be working with you. Thanks for all the encouragement we've received so far, all of the kindness, and everything you've done to make our transition here smooth. In cultures around the world, there is this coming of age or when different cultures will mark that a boy or a woman, for that matter, is exiting boyhood and transitioning into manhood. The Jews for a long time, boys at 13 and the girls at 12 will have what they call the bar mitzvah, where at that age they will transition into adulthood. And now they're responsible on their own for keeping the laws in the Jewish Torah. A boy or girl in preparation for the bar mitzvah must memorize and read large portions of the Old Testament in Hebrew as they are signifying that they are now taking on this responsibility for themselves. And this is normally followed by a four or five hour party and celebration on their behalf. And one tribe in the Amazon, I read that this is how their young boys transition from boyhood to manhood. They engage with what's called the bullet bugs, as you see there on the PowerPoint slide. It's called the bullet bug because one of the stings is said to be 30 times more painful than that of a bee sting and is likened unto being shot by a gun. These young boys are to go out and grab these ants or these bugs and bring them back to the tribe. And they must take on the stings as they do this. They must do it 20 times successfully before they transition and are accepted into the tribe. As men. And then, of course, there's what's called the Amish Ram Springa, where in the Amish community at a teenage age that sort of varies between cultures, the Amish allow their young boys and young girls to go out for the first time away from the Amish culture into the world and experience things that they never have before. And this is sort of a proving ground for them. And if they want to, they can come back. And if they like things better out there, well, then they can stay. Cultures have ways of saying, look, you've matured, you've reached the age of adulthood or growth. And for all of the outward ceremonies that different cultures can have, the reality is that true maturation is something that can't be viewed from the exterior, it's something that takes place inwardly. It's a character transformation. And the only person that can really track it is you. If you have your Bible tonight, turn to First Thessalonians chapter five In first Thessalonians chapter five. Or really, the book of First Thessalonians is written to one of Paul's favorite churches. Paul, Silas, and Timothy went to Thessalonica in Acts 17 on Paul's second missionary journey. And when Paul was in Thessalonica, he and Silas and Timothy, they preached the gospel to those individuals that were there. They were torn away quickly from them because of persecution. And there were two epistles that were written to this group, first and second Thessalonians. The key theme in both letters really is the second coming of Jesus. In just about every one of the chapters in first or second Thessalonians, Paul makes mention about the second coming. He does it in first Thessalonians chapter one. He does it in chapter two and in chapter four and in second Thessalonians. He makes mention of it in the first First two chapters, Paul wants these individuals to grow and to develop and mature. And that's what God wants for all of us. But God doesn't just tell you and me as Christians to reach the level of spiritual maturity. He often gives us a pathway for how this is to be done. 
At the end of 1 Thessalonians, from verse 16 down through verse 25, Paul gives us a pattern or an outline for how this is done. These verses shouldn't be taken as just sort of isolated imperatives or commands where Paul in rapid fashion just spits off various things that these Christians are to do. No, it's far from that. Paul is in these verses tying up all that he has said thus far and saying to these Christians, these young Christians, I want you to grow. In my absence and in the absence of Silas and in the absence of Timothy, I want you to reach the level of full maturity in Christ. I don't know if you view yourself as a mature Christian tonight, but this is what I know. It's what God wants for you. And all of us, to varying degrees, are on this pathway to maturity in Christ. We're not stagnant. We're either growing to be more like him or less like him. And you know which direction God wants us to go in. Tonight, six things from this passage in First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 25, that will sort of help us to gauge it. There won't be any outward ceremony. There won't be any grabbing of the bullet bugs or anything like that. But the New Testament says, hey, here, here are some things. You can look at your life in view of what Paul says at the conclusion of this letter and see where you stand. Where do I need to improve and where do I need to abound and continue to develop and grow? Rejoice evermore or rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and everything. Give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Do not quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecy. Test everything and hold on to what's good. Refrain from every appearance of evil and the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. I pray that your whole body, soul and spirit be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Here are the six things on the path to maturity. Number one, rejoice habitually. Now, Paul had commended them. If you flip to first Thessalonians chapter one and in verse number six, Paul had already commended the Thessalonians for their joy. They had been received the gospel, he says, in much affliction. First Thessalonians chapter one. But then in verse six, he adds this. You receive the gospel in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit. And so they have become Christians in hardship. But out of that hardship, they still remain joyous. This is the first mark on the pathway to maturity is that an individual is able to continually retain their joy. This is what God wants. Now, in the original language, this is a present tense verb where Paul is saying not just to rejoice, but in the Greek, it reads this way. Keep on rejoicing. Paul doesn't want them to just hold fast to this for a moment. He's saying this needs to be your consistent manner of life. Be joyful. Now, New Testament joy, as it's defined, is not to be likened unto the joy that a child would experience if they heard these words. We're going to Disney World tomorrow. Right. That's a certain type of giddy happiness or joy or maybe like an adult. If you find extra fries at the bottom of the Chick-fil-A bag, it's not that kind of joy. New Testament joy is a heart disposition where somebody can stare at even the travesties of life and say, in view of all that God has done and is doing, I choose to be joyful. That's why Paul says in Philippians four and verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah eight and verse 10 is connected to our relationship with God. And the mature Christian is someone whose joy is not merely connected to how things are going on the outside. But instead, this person can be joyful. Come what may. Paul tells them, I want you to keep on rejoicing. We of all people in the world should be joyous. You think about the fact that God is our heavenly father. Jesus, as we just sang a moment ago, shed his blood for us. Heaven is our eventual home for the Christian. Things are always looking up literally. And because of that, we should be the happiest people in the world. We should be joyful when we see other people grow. Paul was in Romans 16 and verse 19. He says about the Romans, I've heard of your obedience everywhere and I'm rejoicing on your behalf. He was happy about that. 
we can be joyful in suffering. When we suffer, we are more linked to Jesus Christ. Matthew 5 and verse 12 says, be joyful because in doing so, you are like the prophets which went before you. That should make us happy. No matter what comes into the life of the child of God, we can always be joyful individuals. People that choose to rejoice on a regular basis. Are you a mature Christian? Here's another question. Are you a cranky Christian? You know, that's a contradiction. The Bible says that Christians are to rejoice, to be happy people. Listen to this verse about Jesus in Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. The Hebrew writer says that Jesus was going to suffer tremendously. But in view of the joy that laid before him, he was able to press through. Jesus was able to look down the hallways of time and say, you know what? My crucifixion is going to lead to my exaltation and I'll bring many sons to glory. And he could face it with joy. People that are always looking at the here and now remain grouchy, frustrated and spiritually immature. The pathway that Jesus took is the pathway we must take to joy. We need to look beyond the present moment and say, you know what? How are things going to work out then? Jesus focused on eternity. And as a result of that, he could retain his joy. One man has said a smile has a way. It's a curve that has a way of straightening out things that are crooked. And that's true. It's all on how we choose to go about it. It's all on how we choose to view things that happen to us in life. The spiritually mature person is someone who learns how to rejoice habitually. In the National Review, they ran a survey and they found out they listed the the happiest countries in the world. Finland was number one. The United States of America came in 18th place. That's right. 18th place, not in the top five, the top 10 or even the top 15. The same National Review Company ran another list of of survey studies and they found the richest country and countries in the world. And we were in seventh. Now, there's a lot to be said about that. But perhaps the most important thing is this. It's possible to have a handful of blessings and a heart void of joy. We're in seventh place when it comes to riches, but 18th concerning happiness. That should say to us, it's not in the stuff. It's on what's inside. Paul could write from prison and say, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. He can tell the Thessalonians, mature Christians rejoice consistently. They rejoice evermore. And that's what I want for you. Here's the question. That's the United States. What if there was a survey individually? I mean, what if they what if the National Review listed individual? Where would you rank? Okay, let's just zero it in. What if there was a survey done in, in your house? Where would you rank? You just list the people that live. I know some of you only have two of you, so slim pickings, right? But where would you rank? What if they surveyed everybody on your block? And they said, now, these are the happiest people that live on this street. What about on your job? What about in this congregation? The mature individuals don't always get their way. They just have learned to be joyful in spite of the fact. And the first thing that Paul says mature Christians do is they've just cultivated this spirit. They just have chosen that I'm going to be a joyful person. You know, a few years ago, this quote became famous. God's concerned with you being holy and not happy. But the reality is that's not in the Bible. When you start reading the New Testament, God's concerned with both things. God wants us to be holy. Yes. But three times, John says he wants your joy to be full. John 15, 11, John 16, 24, first John one and verse four. God's concerned with our holiness and our happiness. And so mature Christians choose joy. Here's number two. We need to be individuals that are constantly in prayer. We need to reach up. 
and reach out in prayer. Notice verse 17. This is probably the most famous verse in the bunch. Verse 17. Pray without ceasing or pray incessantly. But both of these verses count. Verse 17 and verse 25. The second thing that we need on the pathway to maturity is to reach up and reach out in prayer. We'll get to verse 25 in a minute. But let's first deal with verse 17 and what it says and what it doesn't say. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. F.F. Bruce is right when he says this verse does not mean drop everything and do nothing else but pray. It couldn't mean that. But it does mean that everything we do, we do in the spirit of prayer, always ready to offer up prayer, mindful continually of God's presence. Mature Christians have developed this habit. They are consistently in conversation with the Heavenly Father. Psalm 65 and verse 2 says, to you, O God, that hears prayer, to you will all flesh come. Mature Christians have developed this mindset that everything we have in our lives, we need God's help to accomplish and to do. And because of that, we're just going to keep reaching up to God in prayer. We're going to pray to him in season and out of season. We're going to pray to him when we feel like it and when we don't feel like it. Maturity is marked by continuous conversation with God. I heard a man describe First Thessalonians 517 this way on one occasion. He said this Greek word was used in their culture sometimes in a context where they would be describing someone who had a hacking cough. And this person would be described as coughing this same Greek word incessantly. Now, there may be times and short fragments throughout the day when this person is no longer coughing, but no one would say that he or she is over the cough. And if you've ever had a hacking cough, you know, that's true. And it's still with them. And when Paul says pray without ceasing, surely there are times snippets of our day when we are not actually engaged in the practice of prayer. But those are short intervals in our lives in which we are not really talking to God. There's not a long lapse of time that comes between the mature Christians conversation with God and necessitation of that conversation. Paul says Thessalonians pray without ceasing. You know, the Thessalonians love Paul and Silas and Timothy, but more than they needed these teachers, more than they needed to be having conversations with them, they needed conversations with the Heavenly Father. And if we're going to be mature, we need to beef up our prayer lives and pray continually. In Ephesians 6 and verse 18, Paul says, praying always for all things in the spirit. That's this continual attitude. But Paul doesn't just teach this. He practices it. You don't really read in too many epistles where Paul doesn't start out by telling Christians two things. Number one, I'm praying for you. But then number two, I'm praying for you all the time. Would you notice a few of these briefly? Hold your hand in First Thessalonians and go to Romans chapter one. We're just going to highlight these quickly and just move on. I want you to see, though, that Paul practices what he commands. Romans one, verse nine and verse ten. Paul says, I am praying for you constantly. And then in verse 10, the prayer is about this reality. Paul wants to get to them soon so that he can lay his hands on them and impart a spiritual gift. Romans 1, 9 through 11. Fast forward. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's the same practice. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4. Paul tells the Corinthians, I have not ceased to give thanks for you, Corinthians. The Romans weren't his favorite. Sometimes we say, well, this church was Paul's favorite. You know who Paul's favorite church was? Whichever one he was writing to at the moment, because he was letting them know, I love you and I'm praying for you. First Corinthians one and verse four. We haven't stopped giving thanks for you. Go to Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians chapter one. And notice verse 16. Paul is not just praying for them, but he is praying without ceasing. Ephesians one sixteen. He says, we give thanks without ceasing to God on your behalf. And then he prays some things for them specifically that they might know the power of God that is on their side. Fast forward to Colossians chapter one. Paul had never met these Christians at Colossae. He had never been there. He heard that they became Christians when Epaphras taught them. But in Colossians one, three and four, 
It's the same practice. Paul says, I'm praying for you and I'm doing it all the time. Two more. First Thessalonians chapter one, the book we're in tonight. First Thessalonians one and verse two. And it's the same phrase in the Greek New Testament, the same one that's in chapter five and verse 17. First Thessalonians one and verse two. We, Paul, Silas and Timothy are praying for you without ceasing. And then the second time he writes to him in second Thessalonians one and verse three, he says, we just keep giving thanks for you. Do you get the idea that Paul either had one, a ready recollection of all of these churches or a very extensive prayer list? But Paul was always praying for churches. And Paul says, I want you to do the same thing. I think Piper gets it right when he says this. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. His point, it rings true, doesn't it? One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook in the day of judgment will be to prove, hey, it's not that I couldn't obey First Thessalonians 517 because I didn't have time. God's going to say, well, can I check out your news feed? You have plenty of time. How did you use it? Mark 1 and verse 35 says Jesus got up early in the morning while it was still dark and he prayed. Luke 6 and verse 12 says that he spent all night praying in behalf of the apostles. Paul says, I want you to pray incessantly. The mature Christian is frequently reaching up to God so that he or she might grow in the direction and in the way that God would have us to. Is that you? If heaven had a caller ID, would your name be in the recent callers list? You know, there are some people when you get ready to call them, you don't go to your contacts. You talk to this person so often you just go to recent calls and there they are. Is that you? Would my number if I if heaven had a caller ID, would my number be an unknown caller? Do I talk to God enough that I'm in the recent callers list? Paul says, pray incessantly. Notice verse 25 of Thessalonians 5. It's not just about reaching up, though. It's about reaching out. Brethren, pray for us. Paul says the mature Christian is always talking to God, but then they are also often requesting prayers for themselves. No one who is even lightly familiar with the New Testament would argue against this statement. Paul was one of the most mature Christians who ever lived. He was. And nobody in your New Testament requested prayers more than the Apostle Paul. Do you do that? Are you the kind of person that requests prayers for other people? And do you do it often? Are you saying things like, hey, would you pray for me? Because Paul always was. He said in Second Corinthians one and verse 11, I am being helped by your prayers. Can you imagine this group of Corinthians, many of them illiterate, some of them slaves? And Paul writes to them, this educated man who spoke three or four languages, steeped in Jewish culture and readily familiar with the Hebrew Old Testament. And he says, I'm being helped through your prayers. He told the Ephesians in Ephesians six and verse 19, pray for me that I might speak boldly and make the word pure and open as I ought to. Colossians four and verse three, pray for me that doors might be opened. And then in second Thessalonians three and verse one, he says, pray for us that we could be delivered from wicked and unreasonable men. And the gospel can run freely because that's what we want. Mature Christians realize that they need to talk to God for themselves, but they also need others praying on their behalf. Hey, I've got an operation coming up. Would you pray for me? Hey, I've got this situation going on in my life. And would you pray for me? See, mature Christians realize that there's this whole network of God's people, God's family. And it's not the weak that are requesting prayer, but it is the strong. And so we need to be reaching up. Yes, that's important. But we also need to be individuals that are reaching out to other people to say, would you be praying for me? Paul is doing this to the Thessalonians because he believes that their prayers would make a difference in his life. And they would. Mature Christians reach up and reach out. Here's number three. 
Mature Christians, or the pathway to maturity, involves regular thanksgiving. Paul had just said, pray without ceasing in verse 17, but now he gives a specific venue of prayer that we should be engaged in, a specific lane. And that is in verse 18, in everything give thanks, or in all circumstances give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Paul wants these Christians to give thanks all the time. Now, look at verse 18 again. This is important. Paul is not saying be happy about everything that happens. There are some things that are just genuinely bad, some travesties that happen in our lives. Paul's not saying be happy about those things. But he is saying for the Christian, there isn't anything in our lives or any circumstance in our lives from which we can't look from heaven's vantage point and say, surely God can bring good out of this. Romans 8:28 is always going to be true. Paul said in Romans 8 and 28, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. We should be giving thanks continually. We should be saying to God, thank you on the regular. This is linked with prayer in Philippians 4 and verse 6 when Paul says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. Does God hear us saying thank you to him? When verse 17, you pray without ceasing and so many prayers throughout your lifetime have been answered in the affirmative. Wouldn't you agree? Are we frequently saying to God in response to that? God, thank you. In all circumstances, Christians be looking for a window to thank God for everything that he's done in our behalf. Mature Christians do this because the reality is people that can't do verse 18 regularly don't deserve to have their requests answered. Because if and when they are answered, we wouldn't be appreciative anyway. This is a challenge because we are tempted to postpone our thanksgiving until we get our way. But mature Christians say, you know what? God is good, period. Whether he says yes or no, whether he says wait or yes, God's good. And because of that, I'm going to give him thanks. How? On a regular basis. In every circumstance, find a way to push yourself to this area where you are constantly saying thank you to God. It's not because God's on an ego trip and he needs to hear it. It's because we need to hear it. You need to hear yourself saying, God, thank you for the blessings. And I need to hear it, too. Our ears need to hear it and our hearts need to rehearse this reality that everything that we have ultimately comes from God, the father of lights, with whom is no variation or shadow of change. James one and verse 17, lest we forget how blessed we really have been throughout our lives. Paul says, Thessalonians, keep giving thanks. How do we do this practically? And then we'll move on to the next one. Practically, how do we give thanks in all things? What do we need to be doing? Here's the first thing. Begin and end the day with thanks. Before you get out of the bed, just launch out with this one. God, thank you for waking me up this day. He didn't have to do that. When you end your day, regardless of what happened, what has happened, find different things to give thanks about. Begin and book in your days with thanksgiving. Just make that a part of what you're going to do. But here's the next one. Pray some thank only prayers. Just build this into your prayer life. Some prayers where you don't ask God for anything. These prayers are just specifically focused on Thanksgiving. God, I'm not asking for anything during this prayer. And maybe you could work this out. You say, look, on the way to work, I'm going to turn off the radio and pray to God for things that I need for different individuals. On the way home, this is a thank only prayer. I'm just going to pray to God. And all I want to do in this prayer is to give thanks. What about this one? Thank God immediately. I don't think we mean to disobey first first Thessalonians 518, but sometimes we get busy, don't we? God blesses us. We pray about something. It happens and we don't thank God right then and there. And then we don't thank him at all. Learn to thank God immediately. As soon as things happen, give thanks to God. Build in short bursts of sporadic thanksgiving. 
just bring this up throughout the day. And here's the last one. Pray with your eyes open, especially if you're driving. OK, but we talk about watch and pray. Yeah, make sure to do that. But pray with your eyes open. You need to see it. You need to see your cars and your house. You need to see your healthy loved ones. You need to see all of the blessings that God has given. You need to see your brethren. Oh, we pray with our eyes closed so that we might be able to concentrate. But sometimes it's deceptive, isn't it? We sort of space out. But praying with your eyes open, it'll just drive you to your knees in thanksgiving. We'll say like David, who am I and who is my family that you have brought me thus far? And everything, Paul says, in all circumstances, give thanks. If Paul had to learn to be content and he did, Philippians 4 and verse 12, we all need to be enrolled in the school of thanksgiving. Because we all could develop and mature in this regard. Now, here's the next one. On the pathway to maturity, we need to receive God's instructions. First Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20, Paul says, despise not prophesying after he says in verse 19 to quench not the spirit. Now, commentators are all over the place on verse 19. Is Paul talking in verse 19 about some miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit? And is he saying quench not the spirit to mean, hey, don't stop using the miraculous gifts which have been yours? That may very well be true based on what he says in verse 20 about prophecy. But regardless of the fact, what Paul is saying in verse 19 is this. The spirit wields an influence in your life and mine as a Christian. And don't put that fire out. This same word for don't quench the spirit or don't extinguish the spirit is used in Matthew 25. You remember the parable of the five wise and the five foolish virgins and the five foolish. What was their problem? Matthew 25 and verse eight says that their oil in their lamps was running out. It's the same Greek word. Ephesians six and verse 16 says, take the shield of faith. And with that shield, you will quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one that quench the darts of the wicked one. It's the same word in First Thessalonians 519. Do not quench the spirit. Don't put out the fire of the spirit in your life. You received his presence at baptism. Acts two and verse thirty eight. Acts five and verse thirty two says he comes to all of them who obey God. And now Paul is saying, allow him to do his work. Look at verse twenty. Despise not prophecies. Receive God's instruction. The Corinthians argued about spiritual gifts, but Paul makes no mistake about this in 1 Corinthians 14. The greatest spiritual gift in the first century was prophecy, period. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 1, he says, besides love, covet the spiritual gifts, but above all of them, choose prophecy. He says it again in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 39, because this is how God communicated his word to people in the first century through the gift of prophecy. We don't have it now. We have the completed revelation of God's word. But if we are going to be mature, we've got to be people who receive God's instruction. But then this goes a step further. We have to receive all of it, even the parts that push us out of our comfort zone. Even the parts we don't like, even the parts that challenge us, even the parts that say, hey, you're wrong and you need to fix that. If we're going to be mature, we've got to receive what God would have us to. Paul says, now, don't quench the spirit. Ephesians four and verse 30 says the Holy Spirit, he's a human. He's a person. He can be grieved. Ephesians four and verse 30. He's grieved when we say, I don't want your words on that. I'll do it my way. He's insulted when we live like we should. In Ephesians four and verse 31, don't despise the words of prophecy. Mature individuals receive God's instruction. Mason Peoples is six years old. He didn't think that one act of obedience would earn him twenty five thousand dollars. But a few weeks ago, it did. He went to school to take his school pictures. His mom said, you keep that mask on no matter what happens. He sat down in the chair. The photographer said, "Okay, Mason, it's time for your school photo. Would you take the mask down? He says, no, I can't. My mom says I can't do that. The photographer said, I'm sure she won't have a problem. It's just for two seconds. Would you mind taking the mask down? He says, no, thank you. I always obey my mom. The photographer said, "Okay, we'll say cheese. And that's the picture. 
There was an outpouring of responsive love for his dedicated obedience, even in the face of temptation to do otherwise. You know, the devil does it with us. Would you just let down your Christian God? God's not concerned about those little verses. And what if we had the spirit of Mason? I always obey the heavenly father. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Matthew 17, 5, Matthew 3, 17. What if we said no matter what? I'll always keep the shield of faith up. I won't despise prophecies. I won't quench the spirit. Whatever he says, I'm going to do it. Paul says, if we're mature, we will. In fact, if we're if we're mature, we must. And that's what God wants us to do. Now, here's number five. Reason properly. The mature reason properly. And Paul says this about teaching in verse 21 and verse 22. God holds us accountable as Christians to take in the truth and to be able to work things out. In verse 21, he says, test everything and hold fast to what's good. That's in connection with what he said about prophecy in verse 20. It's our responsibility to make sure that we receive the truth properly and nothing contaminates us. In first John chapter four and verse one, John says, beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they're really from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The mature Christian has come to this point in his or her faith. There are many different styles, many different abilities, even many different methods. But there's only one truth from God. Paul says, test everything, but don't just guzzle down anything. Somebody says, oh, he's so smooth. I like him. Paul says, don't be fooled by that. Test everything concerning preaching. But notice the rest of verse 21. We often leave this out. Test everything. Hold fast to what's good. When you find out that it's the truth, you can embrace it. In fact, hold fast and firmly to it. And then in verse 22, abstain from evil in its various forms, however it appears. This is elementary, but it appears over and over again in the Bible where God is speaking to us as if we're spiritual kindergartners. He says, do right and don't do wrong. Isaiah says in Isaiah three and verse 10, tell the good things will go well with him. And then in verse 11 of Isaiah three and tell the wicked it'll be ill with him. Amos says, love the good, refuse the evil. Amos 515. Paul says, abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Romans 12 and verse nine. The mature Christian, the one on the pathway to maturity has learned how to reason properly. He or she is constantly flipping in sermons and in Bible classes. And maybe as they read other religious material to say, you know what, that was a good line. But I wonder if there's a verse to back that up. That sounds good. But, you know, Paul and Peter and John, they never said anything about that. This person won't just receive anything. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, just because they've never heard it before or they haven't heard it said that way. If it's in the Bible, they say, you know what? That's right. And I've got to align with that, even though it makes me uncomfortable. That's just what the book says. You've seen this box before, I'm sure. It's a biohazard sort of trash basket. And it's used to put away sharp objects and things that are used in different procedures medically. But it's because they might puncture through the skin or through a normal waste basket. And it's normally bright red like that one. And it's to say to people that are in the medical field or in other areas of work that say, hey, put all of the sharp stuff that will harm somebody here. You can't miss it. You know, the devil doesn't have one of those. When he gets ready to insert false philosophies, whether it be with theological liberalism or ultra unbiblical conservatism, he won't put a big red label on it and say, OK, guys, I want you to be aware of these doctrines, of these things that will upend and shipwreck your faith. And so Paul says there's not going to be any sign because Second Corinthians 11 and verse 14, he comes as an angel of light. But we're not ignorant of his devices. The mature Christian is saying, I'm going to test everything. And what's good, I'll hold to it. And what's wrong, I'm going to refrain from it because I ultimately want to please God. Now, here's the last one. And I would say this is the most important one. 
the mature Christian remembers that God is working. Would you look at your Bible one last time tonight? This is the most important point, I believe, that Paul makes in this section. Remember that God is working. Paul calls him the God of peace. And he says this is a wish from Paul or prayer. I pray that the God of peace will sanctify you completely, that your whole body, soul and spirit be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The mature person must rejoice and praise. But he or she must also pause and reflect. Paul says, you've got to do your part. There are things for you to do. But I want you to remember this. God is working as well. He calls him the God of peace in First Thessalonians five and verse twenty three, because that's what God gives ultimately. But he goes further than that. He says, I want God to sanctify you. Now, you may be thinking, doesn't that happen when I'm baptized? Isn't that when the Holy Spirit sanctifies me? Yes. But sanctification begins at baptism and conversion, but it ends at the consummation of all things at the last day. And so Paul is saying God is not done working on you. That does two things for people who are interested in being spiritually mature. It creates two responses, one of persistence and one of patience. You see, the mature Christian gets this and he or she says, "Okay, God is still working on me. That's what Paul prays in verse 23. And because God's still working on me, I need to continue to work. If God hasn't stopped, I can't stop. But the mature Christian is also patient because he realizes she realizes I am not the final version of myself. I want to be better and do better. I love that Paul mentions the whole person in verse 23, body, soul and spirit. Did you know God's interested in all three for you and for me and for everybody in the world? We say, well, God's concerned with the soul. According to Paul, he is, but also with body and with spirit as well. The triune God is concerned with the triune nature of humanity. He wants every inch of us to prosper in our lives because he loves us that much. And that's what we should be worried about for ourselves. The mercy and grace of God says, I'm still working on you. Don't give up. Yes, we must we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians two and verse 12. But the next verse says God works in you for his own good pleasure. This point about God working causes the mature person to look into the mirror of life and the mirror of God's word and say three things. God is still working on me. Be thankful. God is still working on me and in me. Be patient. And God is still working in other people. Have mercy. Paul says in verse 24, you can bank on this. Faithful is he that calls you and he will do it. God wants us to be mature. God wants his people to grow into spiritual maturity. This is a process. It won't happen overnight. But if we rejoice, if prayer becomes the regular language that we learn to speak with God, if we are always giving thanks, counting our wins, counting our blessings and not our losses and our hardships, receiving God's truth as he gives it to us, counting the costs and weighing all things as we're taught, refraining from that which is evil. And if we remember that God is still working and so we must as well, but also it's not all up to us. There's heavenly reinforcement. And he can do far more than we ask or even think. When that becomes true about us, we'll be the spiritually mature people that God would have us to be. The good news is we still have time to work. The challenging news is this journey won't be over until the trumpet blows or until he calls us home. Maybe tonight someone needs to obey the gospel. Before maturity can begin, an individual has to obey the gospel. And if you're ready to do that tonight, we would be happy to assist you. If you believe in Jesus and you're ready to turn from sin and be immersed, God will wash away all of your sins, add you to his kingdom, and you can begin the pathway to spiritual maturity.
If we can pray for you or pray with you tonight, you know biblical maturity means reaching up yourself, but it also means reaching out. If Paul could request prayer, you are not small because you do the same. In fact, you're mighty. It'd be our honor to pray with you tonight. If we can help you, come now together, we stand and sing.